show episode 19 and uh if you listened last week uh then you know that we're covering james l brooks and to be honest it's been a fucking pleasure doing it i had so much fun watching the interviews and learning about this man and i can easily say he's uh he's one of my new idols he's absolutely someone that i can look up to i love what he's done in his life and how he got to the point that he did uh because if you listen last week, we mentioned something about like, oh, well, I don't know if it was on the actual podcast or not, but we're like, eh, uh, you know, one person do this, one person do college years and one person do Simpsons years. Come to find out he was the only person working in that fucking Simpsons writers room, Simpsons group that didn't have a Harvard ed- education, uh, which is drop fantastic. straight out. Drop, drop straight out of He didn't even go to Harvard. He went to NYU for like a year and just, I mean, there's so much to say about this man. He's. That was not a discussion that we had had uh, on the podcast. That That's a writer's room uh, discussion, bro. <laughs> Wait, what? The discussion we had on who's going to cover what? That was a writer's room discussion. Oh, that was another. We didn't record that. Okay. All right. No, so no, no. it's a little, that's a behind the scenes, behind, all right? <laughs> peek behind the curtain, everyone. You know that we talk outside of our recordings. Big surprise. Dear <laughs> Lord. <laughs> Fucking the wizard behind the curtain exposed. Yeah. <laughs> Of course, if someone's like, don't look behind that curtain, you're going to be like, yeah, he's probably right. <laughs> I'm not going to look. Uh, but no, uh, welcome to the Doe Show, everyone. I am your host, Jonathan Peckis. I'm going with the full government name today. With me, as always, is Alexander's... Uh, 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 Ale- it's just Alex. It's just Alex. Now it's Alexander's. Like, Ale- There's multiples. Yeah, multiple, which wouldn't be surprising if your mom just had a couple backups in the basement. Like, yeah, my son's pretty fucking clumsy, so we just decided to have his ass cloned a couple times. Um, that's that is uh, Venture Bros right there. That's the Venture oh, Bros yeah? plot right there. Yeah. Is that uh, the Dr. Venture has his sons, has a bunch of clones in the basement because they keep on killing themselves because they're idiots. That's fantastic. Uh, and then also uh, with us is uh, Ryan Burke. How you doing, Ryan? <laughs> I'm doing great. I thought, I thought, what about my nickname? Come on. I was, I was going with the post, and, the post. Yeah. Yeah. yeah on, we have with us. We have Brian, the post. Knowledge. Brain cuck Mackley and the post Burke. Sounds like actually the, the, the post would be like a, the post would be a solid like wrestling name. Like you come out, oh, I'm the post. Hey, how you doing? I work on a dock in New York. <laughs> Which is completely the opposite of how I look. Yeah, you're opposite <laughs> coast, opposite accent, opposite temp- temperament in life. <laughs> if, oh, see, that would be a that would be a great fucking uh, t- talk about a good t- TV show. Uh, in tra- instead of trading spouses, it's trading coasts. And like you go from like working at a weed store in California to be like, hey, now you work on the docks. Come over here, Sonny. We're gonna teach you how to be a yeah, real we're man. Teach you how to be a fucking Boston dock worker. Like, <laughs> uh, but uh, James L. Brooks, he was uh, born in New Jersey, but moved to New York. So uh, 
You know, when he talks on the interviews, he kind of sounds like this. Hey, how you doing? No, he doesn't. He doesn't sound oh. like that at all. He actually so he sounds like he sounds like the most. Uh, I don't know. I feel like I just have a little bit of crush on this man after doing these fucking ten hours. <laughs> Johnny's a man crushing on him hard. He's swimming in the brooks. They yeah, the the brooks are babbling. <laughs> but I was listening to the Pete Holmes podcast and. God, is he a horrible fucking interviewer? Fuck Pete Holmes. And that's usually the time I have for most people. But I'm like, oh, James. Oh, James. <laughs> you should uh, only talk about James in your Marge voice. Oh, James L. Brooks. <laughs> he's, the, he's the one who came up with the idea of me doing Playboy. Oh. your host jonathan peckis and i did about 17 fucking hours of research on my new hero james l brooks uh james l brooks you know he's um he's a, a playwright he's an editor a creator a producer a director uh uh he was a fan of a fan of plays he used to read a lot of plays as a child and a heroin addict i did not know that uh, I don't mean I don't I don't mean it the way that you think. Like he wasn't addicted to drugs, but like he wrote a lot of uh, parts for women. And, like, you know, <laughs> like there, there was like so when when it, when he finally got his break, which we'll get into because I'll tell the whole story. But when he finally got into his break, he he wanted to reinvent the idea of what a heroine is, like a female star. And uh, at the time, like everyone was doing female stars, like, oh, this would be like my mother or like, you know, my grandmother. He was he started to think, like, I want to make the star of these shows, the daughters of the women that have been stars of these shows for so long. You think of like Lucille Ball or things like that, like those old school Judy Garland shit. I don't know if that really makes sense, but like shit like that. He tried to he was he was trying to evolve what was already there not necessarily reinvent it interesting fact that now that you bring that up is i believe in the episode lisa substitute is when he had the most uh involvement in writing the episode and if you watch that episode it's exactly what you're talking about really yep Cool. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of uh, I think patience not the right word, but there's a lot of uh, parallels from uh, James Brooks's work to Simpsons uh, ideas episodes. Uh, like one of the first shows he worked on when he got to L.A. and actually got like a break was uh, he did a couple like spec scripts for a show called My Mother the Car. And there's a Simpsons episode called My Mother, My Mother, the Carjacker. So there's a lot of like that kind of stuff with it. And if and if you I'm not going to read through. I mean, maybe I will at the end if we if we have time. But if you go through his IMDb and look at all the episodes that he created and wrote for on uh, his shows, you can look at one of them and be like, ah, there's a Simpsons episode that the title is almost exactly to that. But it's like, you know, doing in the wind yeah. or like, you know, it's, it's always a Simpsons. 
he'd always end up Simpsonizing one of the, the series, the outside series that he would do. He would Simpsonize it into an episode, pretty much. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, and not like not like a beat for beat. It was more just like the title of the episode. A lot of times, like he had a movie called Starting Over, but they have a Simpsons episode that's called Barding Over. Not sure if it is a direct play off of the movie. Uh, but okay, let's let's get into it. I already called him a heroin addict, so he's definitely not going to be on the show. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, so in 1940, this motherfucker's born in 1940. He's old as shit. He's old as shit. Uh, but uh, I have so much to say about him. I just keep, I can't, like, I, I feel like I'm going to keep cutting myself off because I have so much to say about him, but I just want to get to the brass facts because got a lot of shit written down here. Um, he's very relatable to me. He was, you know, not very well-to-do family father was an alcoholic was raised by his mother and his uh older sister and also his mother's sisters would come along a lot as well and help so he was he admittedly was raised by females uh and i think that obviously has to play into the fact that all of the things he wrote for he wrote such good fucking female parts uh but in the early days you know he was like an unlikable class clown where he was funny but he got beat up all the time for it uh, and he didn't do good in high school. He went to his first year of college at New York, uh, New York Uni- University fucked up. Cause like, that was the first time he was away from his struggling family to like have, it was like, he said, it's the first fun he ever had in his life. And it just took him out of it. Uh, but it's crazy to see like, he didn't do good in high school and he dropped out of college, but he's such a fucking well-educated person. Like he educated himself in a way that just trumps tons of people that you know spend years going to school and like someone asked him about like okay so what was what was your mother like was she like you know she always took care of you always was like uh, overbearing or anything like that and he said and i quote parenting is a luxury and we didn't have that luxury my parents were always gone for one reason or another so we just had to survive like they took care of you know bills and whatever food they could get. And then they took care of taking care of themselves the whole time, Uh, which is really interesting. It's really relatable to me. And that's why I think he's like one of my new idols Uh, just because of the way his whole life shook out after this, like admittedly not great upbringing. Uh, He would read plays as a child to pass the time. Uh, Like that was his thing. He got a magazine that had plays in it. He would just read the scripts of the plays uh, and he was a really big fan of this guy, Patty Chayefsky, uh, considers him to be the most underrated writer in America. And he's actually currently working on an untitled documentary. I don't know how long he's been at that or how serious it is, but I did see that and I thought that was cool. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he drops out of college. He has a bunch of odd jobs that he just never gets down, you know, for one reason or another. He says like, you know, he's dyslexic, so he had trouble doing simple kind of jobs that most people get down pretty easy he's dyslexic and, uh, but yet a writer yeah i don't know i mean that i only heard that one time so i don't know if maybe he was just saying that you know how sometimes people say like well i'm dyslexic certain things are hard for me but it's not like a medical uh diagnosis that they get yeah but that's what i thought too is like this man has written so many incredible things but and, re- and read so much too yeah yeah yeah, yeah. he rewrites scripts <laughs> He does a bunch of rewrites for people, um, which we'll get to later when he when he started Gracie Films. Not that we're trying to claim that he's falsifying his mental health conditions or anything, but <laughs> he's definitely not going to be on he's this show. 
or he's gonna come on just to be like, "Yo, I'm gonna roast the fuck out of you, fucking twerps!" Like, <laughs> no, no, we'll, we'll get into the the the. We'll make him like. We'll, we'll talk the better. Let's let's just cut an edit of just the shit talk portions and send it into him. And be like, "Come on the podcast, bro. We really like you." <laughs> send him the worst edit ever. Yeah, I I don't know. It's, he did an interview with Pete Holmes, so I'm sure he's. Uh, He's willing to do things he doesn't want to because he did not enjoy that fucking interview. He kept kept telling him, like, no, you have it completely wrong. And, like, explain He's a super nice guy, though. He seems like a nice, genuine person. Uh, and I think that comes from a lot of his, like, uh, his his upbringing and his background. Wasn't he a host? A uh, host of... Um, I may have got my information incorrect, but I thought he was a host at CBS News for, like, two no, years. No, he was not a host. He was, uh, so... That's I was getting that he had all those odd jobs. He couldn't keep one. And just by luck. And he's a really big believer in like, you know, luck and like catching a break and, you know, having that one time where you're just in the right place at the right time. And his sister's best friend uh, got him like the, the job or something. Basically, like she knew the person who was in charge of hiring pages for CBS and page boy was just like go get me this, go stand by the door, say hello to everyone as they come in. And uh, he got that job. And usually you needed some sort of like, at least you're in college for this to get that job. Yeah, it's more like an internship type role almost. Kind of. It's like an internship, but he definitely got paid. Because uh, I don't think at the time he would be able to afford to do an internship. Yeah. Because uh, he, he had been working all through high school, like always had a job, always had some sort of odd job. Um, but so he becomes a page boy and he said that every about two years, you know, when there's a page boy, they last about, you know, here, there are two years and then they move up and do something else. Well, he was the one who was there much after two years. And he started to think like, oh, God, like, am I just going to be stuck here? Do I need to start looking at other things? So a job opened up and it was a vacation replacement for a desk assistant at CBS. So basically like a lackey for the bigger people a vacation replacement for that guy, which is just incredible. Like a bench warmer. Yeah. Like he's going on vacation for two weeks. So I need you to bring me my coffee and, you know, make sure all my files are in order, shit like that. So he got that job and, uh, the person he was replacing went on vacation for two weeks, just never fucking came back, never came back. And this is a spot where you need a, a master's in journalism. Uh, cause you're not only just getting coffee and shit, you're, you know, reading things, helping people with like real shit, real news shit. And, uh, you're probably, uh, I know you're probably like going through if people are sending them like content and type stuff or like pitches and proposals type deal. You're going to be sifting through all of that and trying to find what is worth someone's time and not worth someone's time. And if you send them some shit, they're going to yell at you and throw the coffee back at you and you're going to have to go get the coffee again. So yeah, you got to have a master's for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like a master's in, in journalism with extra classes and tons of uh, credits to your name. And basically, like, and this is the fucking story of this guy's life, and that's why I love it so much. Basically, they're just like, well, you're already here, so you got the job. And now he just has this job that he never would have been able to get if, if he had, like, a fair shake of things like everyone else. Like, he didn't finish college. He didn't have a degree. There's no reason he should have gotten that job other than just right time, right place. Kid did a good enough job. He's here. Leave him. And that's where now it that's, is. 
that's nope. that's where his his career kind of started up. Yeah, so I was gonna say the writing career started, right? Yeah, so he he went from there to like uh, uh, working at the like flagship radio station for CBS. So he was writing news for the radio show, and like again, I feel like we've insulted James Brooks enough by calling him a heroin addict. I don't want to say that this man just got where he is today by being lucky, because you can be <laughs> lucky and someone can give you a break. But if you fuck up and you just you're not the right person, you don't have the talent, you don't have the chops to break up that chance that you were given. Uh, uh, you know what I'm saying? If you don't have that, then they're just going to fucking throw you out to the to, to the trash. You're not going to last that long. And just be like, oh, well, he just got lucky. No, he got lucky and was good enough. Was prepared for it. Yeah. I don't know necessarily about prepared for it, but he was good enough to get through. He was able to step uh, up to it. And yeah, yeah, able done. to step up, able to produce things that people liked. Because from there, it just kept shooting up. He was working at this uh, radio station. It was a, it was a, a writers guild job. It was a union job, like well paid, highly secured job. And uh, someone in L.A. in '65, so he's 25 at this time. Someone in L.A. is like, hey. Uh, I saw some of your stuff. I like it. I want you to come out and work for my documentary team that's out there. And he was like, you know, he's newly married, like a lot of shit changing for this guy. And he left this not cushy, but comfortable, like safe uh, union job to move all the way to the opposite side of the country to work on a documentary thing. Uh, his wife kind of like, you know, I know something about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know if you could say you had a union job here before you left, but that's true. Uh, but they're moving apart the cross country part, I guess. Yeah. So his wife was very supportive. Of, uh, his the wife at the time. Is that when he went to work with uh, David L. Walper? Yes, that is exactly. Yeah, okay. Wal Walper had the documentary team. He did a couple of things for him. Was like fired soon after he got to LA and his wife was supporting both of them with like not a great job. I don't know what she was doing to be fair, but, uh, and also I'm not even, I wrote all these fucking notes, but I'm, I've been researching so much. I haven't even looked at the notes. I don't even know where I'm at in this note thing. I'm just going off the top of my head because I fucking love this dude's story so much. It's <laughs> I like, wanna, so I want to comment on this because I think you would find this kind of interesting. So not that James L. Brooks worked on it at all, but when he did work with David, L. Walper, and mm -hmm. I looked into what he did, and he he produced some some awesome shit. He did Roots, L.A. Confidential, and what? the one I, Roots, the, yeah, the one I thought you'd find the most interesting. You ready for this? He produced Willy Wonka. Get the fuck out of here, really? Yeah, I mean, not James L. Brooks, but no, 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 I know, no, no, Walker, the with. guy who who brought him into the documentary team. Yes. Uh, that's fucking awesome. I did not know that. Uh, that's a th that's a three level connection to Willy Wonka. Guess what next episode is, baby? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but uh, that's cool. I didn't know that. Thank you for looking that up. Uh, I thought you would find that interesting. <laughs> it's my fucking favorite movie of all time. Of course, I find it interesting. But like a uh, fun thing that they did at that documentary uh, company, they did. They were called up by General Motors to do a documentary about how cars were not dangerous. It was the highways and it was the people and it was uh, the street signs. And it was like this huge fucking uh, what's the word for it? Uh, it was this huge propaganda thing because what is the guy's name? I have it. 
Uh, Ralph Nader. You guys know Ralph Nader? Oh, fuck yeah, Ralph Nader. So, Ralph Nader, back in the day... One of my favorite politicians of all time. I I mean, well, here, here, you'll like this then. So, back in the day, he was uh, an automobile safety lecturer, uh, and General Motors hired a private investigator, private investigators, to follow Ralph Nader around to, like, get dirt on him so they could just, like, do this whole smear campaign. And these fucking private investigators not only followed him into a bank, but then we're looking over his shoulder to see what he's writing down on his bank slips. Ralph Nader fucking sued him, got four hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars in nineteen seventy money. Four hundred and seventy four hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars in today money is still four hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars in nineteen seventy. Like why did he stay in politics? I would have been in the Caribbean. I would have been kicked up. Fuck the, fuck the world. Fuck politics. Fuck Ralph Nader. I don't even care what he does. Dude, he sued them and got that much like that. Like, it was no problem. And that was one of the documentaries that I don't know if Brooks actually worked on it per se, uh, but they were doing that at the time. Um, but one that uh, one documentary he did work on was for National Geographic, and it was like the war versus the wasps and the bees. And um, at the time, he was like definitely afraid of both of them. But <laughs> editing the f- edit because he had to go through the film and he would write out the narration for it, like and the bees of blah blah blah, 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 blah and as the wasps fly, and he have to like put his face to this old school like uh, video thing. And he says by doing that, it was like his own self-induced aversion therapy. And he completely got over his phobia after that. Like as soon as he made that documentary, just no longer afraid of bees or wasps or bugs. Which I thought was pretty interesting. Learn enough about a topic, you no longer fear it. Yeah, you, you put it right in front of yourself. I mean, a lot of people pay thousands of dollars a month to get that kind of treatment. This motherfucker just did it in the studio room. <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah, so he's working for the documentary team. He gets laid off. He's in tough spots. His wife is taking care of the both of them. Uh, he has, and you know, we're, I'm going to say this and bring it to a point, and then we're going to take a break and come back with the rest of the story. But he has a story where he would drop off his wife at work every single day, and then this is in L.A. So he said he would either drive up the coast and read, like read plays or books or whatever. Like I said before, he's a big, big reader of plays. Uh, he would either go up the coast and read, or he would go to the local Los Angeles courthouse and sit in on trials, just because he had that much time to kill and he didn't know what to do. So he's either in a courtroom or sitting on the beach reading a fucking book or a play. And he had no job. His wife was taking care of him. And on that note, we'll be back. What a lucky bastard. <laughs> right, right after these messages. And we have returned to the story of James L. Brooks. Uh, so like I was saying, so he's working for these people. Uh, or he wasn't working for anyone. He went to a New Year's Eve party that was thrown by the people he was doing the documentaries for that he was no longer working for. And he says, "Is eh, like, you know, not a dingy party, but just like people, just like us. We're all standing around wearing T-shirts, you know, shorts and all that. 
And uh, these two people walk in wearing, you know, a three-piece tux, a gorgeous gown, and uh, it ended up being his future writing partner, Alan Burns. And basically, he just got to talking to this guy at the party. Didn't, like, he, he didn't walk up to him and, like, push an agenda. He just walked up, you know, kind of mentioned something he's always wanted to write for, you know, a comedy show or do some sort of writing like that. And Alan Burns was just like, Right, I'll give you a shot. Like, here, talk to these people. You'll get set up. You can write stuff for these people. Like, without ever seeing anything that this man did, without knowing him for more than a conversation well, at a party. He's probably seen some of the work he's done, I'm assuming, because he's been well, in the I game mean, for a little bit. Well, he, he probably knows him from, like, the documentary team or something like that. But it's not like, you know, it's not like Brooks at that time had ever written for any shows or anything. Alan Burns was the producer of... Um, my mother, the car, correct? Yes, yes. And then that's when he hired Brooks to rewrite the script. My well, he was uh, he, he gave was him an opportunity, rewriter, right? Yeah, he he gave him an opportunity. Fun little fact, uh, in terms of being given producer credits in t in uh film, the producer is one of the highest ranking things. But in uh, television, producers like the fifth. Interesting. Really? That is interesting. Well, during this time when, I mean, we'll get farther into uh, Brooks's life, but like during this time, it was a huge change for television for, you know, uh, like new, new channels were coming up. New uh, companies were being more relevant. Old companies were not being so relevant. There's big changes being done. Uh, but he talks to he talks to Burns. He gets the the spot, and he starts writing for like uh, he he wrote for a couple things for my mother the car. Like it was only like maybe three episodes that he just helped out on. And uh, funny thing about okay, so my mother the car. Uh, we talked about this earlier. There's a Simpsons episode, my mother the car jacker, and that's you know like a, a little tip of the hat to what James L. Is Brooks that did before the, the is Simpsons. Is that one with uh, Homer's mother in it? Yep. Yeah, Mona and Simpson, she turns yeah, out yeah, that she's a, like, has like a, the dark shady underside past that no one knows about. Interesting yeah, yeah, yeah. enough, like, it goes back to a heroine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and that's... Uh, I mean, oh, that's right. She was like some like vigilante type thing yeah. in the like 70s. Yeah, she was the uh, the hippie counterpart to Mr. Burns. Burns that, that, yep, yep. Remember whatever. when uh, hey. Bart puts on the the tie dye t shirt? No, <laughs> no. Look, Grandma, the and we're all are wearing back. and we're all wearing tie dye. We're wearing tie dye right, right now. Perfect. Just funny. Just funny. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't think it's a. I don't think it's like a crazy. Uh, I don't think it's a crazy idea to think like, oh, we're all wearing tie-dye t-shirts right now. That's like 90% of my clothing. Oh, yeah. But it just it just happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I exclusively wear tie-dyes, band t-shirts, and uh, real old church t-shirts. There you go. So in 2002, uh, fun fact about my mother, the car, TV Guide said that it was the second worst a uh, show of all time behind the Jerry Springer show. And I mean, 2002 is w- very, 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 very long after these sh- 
that show came out so i don't know Uh, how do you judge something in the past if you weren't living in it yeah and also like you know how 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 common is to be like oh jerry springer shows trash television it's like i don't know did you know that the the jerry springer show well jerry springer one was like a super like well-renowned journalist before the jerry springer became what he's known for today he was the he was the mayor of cincinnati and the Jerry Springer yes, show. Yes, he start. was. I and forgot yeah, about that. He was the mayor of fucking. Cin- I think we were making fun of Cincinnati last week too. So that's a nice yeah, little yeah. callback right there. But so he's the mayor of Cincinnati. Then he started doing this like hard hitting journalistic show, but it got trash ratings. And then he turned it into what the Jerry Springer show is. And he's like, I hate it. I've never watched a single fucking episode of that trash ever. But it makes me fucking money. So money makes a lot of people money. <laughs> yeah i always thought jerry springer was just like a midwest thing because like i remember seeing it on like the local chicago channels uh and come to find out it was nationwide people loved it and hated it nationwide um but you know back to what we were saying before with uh you know him brooks being a big believer and catching a break and you know get, having a lucky circumstance like this college dropout goes across the country to take a chance on a job he wasn't sure of, gets fired, then at the fucking party that that place was having, meets someone who changes his life forever. He becomes his writing partner. Uh, he achieves his dreams of being able to write on shows. And after that point, he had had two credits on shows that he had been on. So he had an agent, and uh, he had about like a season, quote-unquote, like a whole year of just doing freelance work. He wrote for... Uh, CBS that girl right well no CBS was before he moved to LA he stopped working for CBS when he moved to LA uh, and I don't, did I all don't this know if you're and right what, on that one no he definitely did I, he I'm had pretty that sure Burns and Brooks got hired by CBS to write and create the Mary Tyler Moore show was that on CBS I thought you were talking about like CBS the news because he worked for CBS, no, CBS in... programming oh okay yeah yeah well uh was that cbs or nbc i don't know i don't know the stations that they were on but yeah so he had some f- freelance work and he started to get his chops a little bit he wrote a couple of things for that girl the doris day show and like two or three episodes he wrote uh or at least helped writing on for the andy griffith show nice. which i thought was really cool i didn't know that like i only know him from the simpsons and like i remember when i was little watching andy griffith with my mom and my grandma and stuff like that um, I just never realized that he was a part of things like that. But in 1969, he was able to make a pilot based on the scripts that he had done for other things. And that's when he started his first show with uh, Alan Burns, obviously, uh, on Fox. It was the, uh, it's called Room 222. Never heard so, of it. You've never so that was like the first thing that he created with Alan Burns. Like him and Alan Burns went on to be the creators of multiple shows, uh, but that was the first one, and he is credit credited for being the creator of 113 episodes, but he only wrote had the writing credit for one. And interesting thing that I found out about writing credits, and he said this about uh, a certain spot later in his life. I don't know if this was done before that point or if it's still done after but they had a rule on one of their shows whoever wrote the episode originally gets full writing credit it's not a you know co-writing the reason two that, people. do you know the reason they did that 
Yes, I believe I do. It was it was to to subside rewrites. Exactly. So like some asshole wouldn't say, "Hey, well, this needs a rewrite," and then get the his name in the credits. And I think that's such a smart idea. And I want to say that they carried that over to The Simpsons. In uh, in television broadcast er, terms, um, a producer is usually a writer as well. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think they carried that over to The Simpsons because he talked a lot of times about The Simpsons always being a writing room style kind of thing. Someone writes the episode, it gets uh, kind of talked about in a group, someone does a rewrite, all that kind of stuff, uh, but it always still remains the writer credit of the person who did it. Like, you might see, like, um, who, who were we talking about last week? Or uh, Al Jean and who is his partner? Matt Selman? Uh, yeah. I think so. So like they would write episodes together, like they would write it together and then bring it to the group as they both wrote that. So that's why they both get the writing credit on it. But uh, yeah, like you said, they, they did it so that, you know, some new writers like, well, I need to get a couple credits on my name. Let me just say that this needs a rewrite or, you know, try and elbow some. Hey, I wrote a couple things on that. Shouldn't I get a writing credit? Uh, I, I love the rule. I think it's a fantastic way to keep egos down uh, and keep the show quality up. But so he created room 222 and it was actually one of, it was a one camera show, which made it a lot easier for the writers and producers and all that. But uh, they had, it was one of the first shows that had an African American star. It was like the second by like two months. And it's not like they were trying to like set a record or anything like that, but they had one of the first shows with an African American star, and I thought that and was pretty good. And he's a big fan of working, having the female lead the heroine role. So, pretty progressive writer. Pretty progressive writer. Yeah, definitely. And you know, hearing interviews of this guy, he still is just quite a progressive dude in general. Uh, like. People asked him little snippets about politics and one interview was during the pandemic and he spoke a little about about that and uh, just really, really wise thoughts about, you know, a global pandemic. He said, you know, never in the history of humanity has this many people been traumatized at the same time. And I, was, I kind of like sat and thought about that for a minute, like because he was like so many of us during the pandemic, like we were all traumatized at the same time. And like, what is that going to lead to with like humanity, like, or at least like American, like ideals or American humanity. Yeah. Uh, He's very, very smart person. Uh, Fun fact about room two twenty two, It beat Sesame street for the best new show. Like when it came out. Huh? Which is like, you know, obviously... A very odd comparison. Well, it's like, you know, uh, so they'll have like, you know, best drama or best comedy, best supporting actress, shit like that. But it was just the category of best new show. Just completely vague, best new show. And they beat Sesame Street. Yeah. And it's like, you know, Room room 222 is... is Exactly. Like, look where Sesame Street is now. Look where Room 22 is, or 222 is. One of my favorite Uh, things of uh, recent Sesame Street shit is they were like, and now we introduce our first homeless character. And people are like, what about Oscar the Grouch? Is he nothing? 
He lives in a trash can. That mother, he lives, ba- he has a better living situation than you, Alex. Don't. Have you ever seen inside of that trash can? He's got a two bedroom trash can down there. I he bet goes you. down. I bet he's you. He's got yeah. like a kitchen. <laughs> he's it's actually just covering a sewer grate and he goes down and he's one of the sewer people and he has like a fucking like condo type shit d- down there. Wait. Have you, are you saying you've never seen the inside of Grover's, or not Grover, uh, Oscar's living space? Because he actually does have like a living space in the trash can. I have not been, I've not been made aware of that living space. And if it's better than mine, I'm a little bit. Sensitive. I think he's just a homeless person that's on a lot of drugs. I don't know. And the inside Maybe. seems I mean, a lot more spacious. He's <laughs> <laughs> like best <laughs> Snuffleupagus actually started as uh, Big Bird's imaginary friend, friend yep. and then became a real character. So he forced himself into the reality? ether of, 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 of reality. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, he started as a hallucination on a Muppet. Like, <laughs> <laughs> what level of reality is that? What base is that? Like, like all right, that's that's when the network comes in, and like you know, the network always has to come in and be like, "Listen, guys, we've been looking at the ratings." People are a little concerned that a seven-foot uh, bird has an imaginary friend that's a heroin addict. <laughs> <laughs> no, who, James? James L. Brooks? No, he just loves writing roles for women. Like, no, Snuffleupagus, man, he looks like a junkie. Like, <laughs> he looks like ah, a junkie. He's... He gives off strong junkie vibes, like. Strong junkie vibes would be a great fucking punk band. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You're right. Yeah, that is well. such a good new age punk band name. Let's do thank something you, with that. Thank you, New Jersey. We're not allowed to play in New York. Our names are... <laughs> I can't even remember what the fuck we just said. Strong, strong, strong junk vibes. Strong junkie vibes. We are strong junkie vibes. We play punk, but with a phaser pedal. <laughs> <laughs> and we just turn it up all the way for every song. <laughs> Uh. Uh, so okay so last we left james l brooks it was 1969 he had created room 222 now we get uh now i get into a an era era based uh explanation of uh where james l brooks was Okay, so from 70 to 82, he was obviously working on other small projects, freelance writing, you know, shit like that all over the place. But him and Alan Burns uh, created the Mary Tyler Moore Show. And at the time, they had been working with or known Mary Tyler Moore's husband, who was like a big, big head at Fox. But because he worked for Fox and Mary Tyler Moore's show was going to be put on a different network he had like legal things where he couldn't be a part of it. So he had, um, he had, you know, James and Alan come in, they created the show and the Mary Tyler Moore show is extremely popular. Like, I mean, it's still cult classic, you know, just a great show, but it had three spinoffs. So not only did he get that Mary Tyler Moore money, but he got all the spinoff money too. Like there was Rhoda, there was Phyllis, and there was Lou Grant, all spinoffs of it. Um, and then also in like uh, multiple years later, this is in like the 2000s, he wrote three original episodes for a show called De Sylvie, uh, Sylvia Melikam Show, 
And I thought it was like a Hispanic thing, but no, it's just like a straight Norwegian copy of the Mary Tyler Moore show. And but after he did Mary Tyler Moore, he, you know, had enough success in the television world where people started trusting him by name. They they didn't have so many producers and executives or whoever it was at the time coming in and giving them notes. They had freedom with what they did because they had found so much success before that. Well, that's uh, one of the things that he did with the for the Simpsons was he negotiated in the tr- contract for it with Fox that uh, the network would have no control over the content of what the Simpsons did. That makes a lot of sense because they shit talk Fox a lot. Once he managed to get like, you know, that kind of trust from the industry pre Simpsons, he ends up using that clout to actually get a pretty good deal for them in terms of that then. Yeah. And it seems like with those stories that you hear about stuff like that, like that was back then, this is now, I don't think even if you were James L. Brooks right now, you would have that. Yeah. Well, I mean, look at how many times the Simpsons has fucking roasted Fox. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, yeah. The fucking Banksy opening scene where it's showing all the Fox stuff being produced in like slave labor camps in China with like pandas working in the mines and the last unicorn poking out the holes of the fucking DVDs of the show. Like you, there's a that reason that network, yeah, there's a reason that, that dark, networks yeah. won't let that be a part of the contract anymore, and it's because of what they did with it. But it's like it was dark, but it was also real. It's real. It's a thing. Like that was one of those ones that where you just like kind of stop breathing for a second as it's airing, and you're like, oh, wow, I can't believe they just did that. All right. So after the success of his shows, right? He married then, Tyler Moore. Yeah. And well, yeah, he then left when seventy eight, and that's he. That's when he created Taxi. Do you know why he left the Mary Tyler Moore show or those shows that he was doing at the time to do Taxi? I do not. I do not. He had that. been writing uh, for women parts for so long. He started to get like a little drab, not a drab feeling about it, but he's like, I want to do something different. He's like, I want to make a like a not a female heroine story, uh, and I also know he went he well writing Taxi. They did some what would be considered, I guess, Gonzo journalism, where they actually hung out in taxi cabs, like um, in like dispatches, dispatches, yeah, and and got a feel for actually the the environment and the characters, and then they wrote their script, which I found awesome you know if you're gonna write about something get yourself involved so i think that was the doing of i could be wrong on the name but i want to say that this is the guy grant tinker grant tinker has always been like a fucking a guardian angel for james l brooks like he almost got fired grant tinker wouldn't allow it uh taxi got canceled and uh he called grant tinker like drunk after it got canceled and was like hey, you know, we all love this so much. And he was like, I can't do anything for you. And James L. Brooks said, I don't need you to do anything for me. I just need you to be there so I can vent. After venting, Grant Tinker picked it up for another season on a different network. This guy has always been there helping out, like doing these crazy things. He saw the uh, potential for him. Exactly. He saw the potential and he went for it and he took chances and he fucking knocked it out of the park every time. But, uh, 
Yeah, so so I believe it was Grant Tinker. It could have been someone else, but one person in James L. Brooks' life told him the importance of doing research. Like if uh, it was when he was doing Room Two Twenty Two, I want to say, yeah, it was, and because the show is about like a teacher, you know, whatever, and uh, he, the guy kept sending him to a high school. He's like, go spend some time at the high high school, research at the high school. That's how he got the idea for the characters for that show. And then with Taxi, they went and spend, uh, spent like a whole 24-hour shift basically at a taxi cab service where this New York article where the show was based off of uh, was written about. And that's how he found all of the motivation for all the characters. And uh, he's a real big guy on like uh, casting. Like you have to have the right people. And he took a lot of time on casting. But yeah, sorry. Right. Oh, you're Go good. Ahead. And I, I think he learned that. That's a perfect segue because I think he learned that a little bit more the following year in 79 when he left uh, the television industry and moved into the film industry. And that's when he was involved with starting over, which he's a king at putting Easter eggs all over in terms of yeah, showing yeah, yeah. his life past starting over he's done with one industry jumping into another and his first film is starting over which i thought was pretty funny yeah and and, and let's not forget uh the simpsons episode barding over which again like i mean i'll have to look more into this to see if like the episodes warp were pulls off of the names or if it was just a clever name it's like, yeah, it's the shitty Beatles. Are they any good? No, they suck. All right, well, it's not just a clever name. If you spent time writing an entire script for a movie, wouldn't you, wouldn't you just bleed it over into a 30-minute segment? Make fun of yourself? <laughs> I would. <laughs> I mean, the Simpsons have always been good about making fun of themselves. And some people don't like it and say it gets a little too meta after a while, but I enjoy that humor. Yeah, I'm always a pretty big fan of self-aware humor, like... And then he went in to write Terms of Endearment and Broadcast News, which from being have a background being in the uh, news industry, a news junkie, it was, it, yeah. he wrote a movie about it, which I thought was quite comical. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if we can go back to Taxi for a second. So Taxi had Danny DeVito and Andy Kaufman. And do you guys know who Andy Kaufman is? I love Andy Kaufman. That man was fucking insane. Quick story. So like he spent that time at the taxi place and he uh, the way that he wrote the character for Danny DeVito's character on taxi, who was like the dispatcher, you know, real rough and tumble kind of guy. He was at the taxi place and saw a taxi driver try to bribe the dispatcher and be like, can I get a clean car, man? Can I can I get a car that doesn't smell like shit and looks like shit? And when he saw that, he's like, I understand what this character is going to be the way that Danny DeVito got that uh role because like i said he is a very long casting process like he'll do 40 high level celebrities and 80 other people and then find one person one day off a random thing so him and alan uh burns they walk into the uh the room where danny devito is about to like uh audition for this role and he goes all right so which one of you assholes wrote this and they're like, you're fucking hired. <laughs> <laughs> like after interviewing 80, 90 people. And he's just like, that is who we're looking for. Uh, and Andy Kaufman is a story. They had gone to the comedy store where he was performing all the time. And uh, 
what's the guy's name? Tony Clifton. Tony Clifton opened up for Andy okay. Kaufman. Big fucking dickhead. Almost gets the place violent. And then Andy Kaufman comes on, fucking kills it like he always did. Uh, Andy's agent at the time, who was everyone's agent, fucking Shapiro, comes up to James L. Brooks and uh, Burns sitting at a table. And he goes, hey, Tony Clifton is actually Andy Kaufman. And they're like, what the fuck? They're blown away by it. So they want to get Andy Kaufman for Taxi. But Andy's like, I'm only going to take this role if you hire Tony Clifton. And he played that role very close to his chest. It was not a well-known thing that they were the same person. So to get Andy on the show, they had to hire Tony Clifton. And Tony Clifton caused so much fucking ruckus when he was there to film that the other actors were like, we're not going to do this if he stays on this role. So they had to go to Andy Kaufman and talk to Andy Kaufman about how they can fire Tony Clifton from the show. And Andy's idea was, all right, you can fire him, but it has to be on stage and it has to be in front of everyone. <laughs> and they're like, no way. Oh my God. They're like, okay. So they go <laughs> and he's Tony Clifton on stage. They come out, they fire him. He's doing <laughs> getting crazy, getting violent. The Paramount fucking studio security had to drag him out, literally threw him out of the door. Everyone's fucking panicked because all the people, all the actors, all the stage crew, all the cameramen, they don't know that that's Andy Kaufman. He gets thrown out of the fucking door as Tony Clifton. And then he calls like one of James L. Brooks's executives or like, a, you know, workers, co-workers kind of thing. And he was like, that was the greatest time of my life. <laughs> and then Andy Kaufman comes back and does the rest of the show. No problem. What a trip. What what a fucking legend Whoa. to be able to he just I, he just split himself completely in half and like did you did know. you have you seen the documentary about Jim Carrey playing Andy yes. Kaufman and like have you seen the movie of Jim Carrey playing yeah. Andy Kaufman you got yeah because the, there's the documentary and the movie and they're both fucking yeah phenomenal. well like my my favorite thing with the documentary was then when like. Jim Carrey played Andy Kaufman or did, did, I don't know if played him is the proper term, but like did Andy Kaufman in front of his parents and they're like going out to dinner with Jim Carrey as Andy Kaufman. And they're just like, well, it seems like we're hanging out with our son right now. And it's really fucked up. Like (laughs) there's, there's some pretty crazy points in that documentary where like, uh, like it was not like a scene. It was like, you know, Jim Carrey being Andy Kaufman, as Andy Kaufman around Andy Kaufman's family and be like, hi dad, hi mom. And then like yelling and arguing with his father, like Andy Kaufman would. And there was like some emotional scenes where like, they're all kind of crying and like, no, nobody. I I think if that was, if that was my family, like someone's playing my brother in a movie, they start yelling at me. I'd be like, you better get this guy. I'm going to knock his fucking teeth in. Like you better calm him down. But they were like, they just loved it. They were into it. It was like a, I don't know if it's maybe like a therapeutic yeah. for him at a certain point, but enough about Kaufman. Uh, but hey, I just want to say that because he was a big part of Taxi. He was a huge part of Taxi, a big part of its success. Same with Danny DeVito. Uh, who else is in there? Jeff Daniels from Dumb and Dumber is in Taxi, I believe. I don't know. I don't, this isn't a Taxi podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so he does his film in. He has fun in the film industry. You got anything else on the film industry? Well, we just—I was just talking about Taxi. I mean, if you're talking about the film industry, he did the starting over, terms yeah, of yeah, yeah. Uh 
there's a fun story about terms of endearment uh, that ties into him ending up starting The Simpsons. Okay. Was uh, it by meeting uh, Tracy Allman? No, no, no. Okay. This was uh, so when he was after he was done filming Terms of Endearment, one of these stars of the show uh, gifted him an original comic panel of Matt Groening's. It was uh, Nine Ways or Eight Ways to Die in L.A. It's like, you know, drive by shootings, all this stuff. And then the last two were success or failure. And like that was the two last ways to die in L.A. Uh, and he always loved it, and that's why when they were doing the shorts, he went to him to do that. But there's still there's still a pretty good amount of stuff between you know 1983 and 1989. Actually, actually, there's not. 87 is when he, he returned he to TV. Movies. Yeah, he did the movies, and then he returned to t- television to actually help Tracy Ellman as a producer. She. So do you uh, go ahead? Uh, I was going to say we can talk about the movie he did before he took the break that led into the Allman show. Uh, so do you guys know what Terms of Engagement is about? I do not. I'm going to be honest. I've never seen it. Yeah, ne- me neither. But like real short snaps is super long, drawn out drama comedy about a girl with an overbearing f- uh, mother and a blah, blah, blah husband. They have whatever should happen. She gets terminal cancer and then fucking dies at the end. But it's still a comedy, uh, which I thought was interesting. Never watched it. You know, maybe I probably will after this. But uh, like Jack Nicholson, Danny DeVito, Jeff Daniels and John Lithgow are all in that movie. They won a bunch of awards for it, too. A ton of awards. So much success from that. And he. uh, uh, The director, Alan Pakula, Brooks specifically wanted him for that spot. Like, like you mentioned then, uh, earlier, he's a he's a key uh, caster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he said multiple times, like, I don't think we would ever have been able to do that without this one person playing this role. And he says that about like every single character in the shit he's made. So obviously, it's very important to him. But this is like, uh, like uh, he got Paluka to direct for this, and then later. Uh, Luca got him back. It's like, you know, it was it wasn't like a I scratch your back, you scratch mine, like you owe me one. It was more like I know you picked me because you thought I was right for this, and I think you're right for that, so I'm gonna hook you up with these people to do that. Uh but interesting thing about terms of endearment, it's a very Americana, like the way it's set and the time it's set in. Uh Brooks had everyone, I don't know if it was everyone, I don't know the extreme details, but he had all the actors and like uh, people that were working on the movie. He had them all look at all of the Norman Rockwell paintings, which I thought was really interesting. That is pretty fucking cool. I mean, just like a, a really good way to, I don't know, put your, put your idea across to everyone working on the film. Nineteen eighty-three to nineteen eighty-seven, the lost years. Dun, dun, dun. Well, I mean, it's not really lost years. He started Gracie Films in eighty-six, and uh, I mean, that's you see it at the end of every Simpsons episode. But uh, basically, 
from yeah exactly but yeah basically he just like uh traveled and like took some vacations and shit he still like did bits and pieces of stuff here and there but he didn't have anything credited to him for man 84, needs a break 85. man needs a break he's been hey, working he hard definitely needs a, he, he deserved it but uh, he came back 87 and uh so I said before, uh, when he was he got a gift from Terms of Endearment uh, actor, that was uh, the Matt Groening thing. So they wanted to find some sort of animation to use as little 30-second bumpers before commercials. And that's how that leads into that's that. That's how The Simpsons uh, was born. Tracy Allman, or yeah, Tracy, not Allman, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, yeah. Isn't it Allman? Holman. But with uh, then on the the Matt Groening side of it, when he was approached by Brooks to write shorts for the Tracy Ullman show, um, he was originally going to be, because he was working on his, uh, he had the, the cartoon series that he was doing, the comic series was the, uh, what, the something hell? Um, My Life in Hell or whatever? Oh, just Life in Hell. Yeah, Life in Hell. Yeah. And he was originally going to do that, but then it turned out that he would have to, like, and at this point, that comic was his entire life's work, and he'd have to, like, rescind the rights to it type deal, and he was like, uh, I'm not comfortable doing that, so I'm just going to go ahead and create something new, and, like, he came up with the idea of the dysfunctional but, like, loving family in Brooks's office while he was doing that. Yeah, and actually, so it wasn't, it was, a little, he had a little bit more foresight than that. Like, he had that drawn without ever talking it. Like, they never said, hey, we want to do like a life, uh, life is hell thing. He came in with the idea, like, well, I'm not, I can't let them possibly take this. Yeah. Like, once he knew that what the deal would be, would be that them taking that, he's like, I am not giving that to them. That is mine, and I'm coming up with something new. It was even before that because they had never even talked before. Like he didn't, he, they didn't show him a deal and like, hey, if you give us this, we'll make a cartoon. He went there and he was like, well, I don't want them taking this. So he drew very quickly in about five minutes, and like you said, in Brooks. Yeah, office. like literally in the office, he came up with it. And I think yeah. I think it's super funny because okay, if, if you look at like two of um, Fox's most successful fucking um, cartoon type shits, so you're looking at The Simpsons, which like we just said, they got picked up like that of him literally scribbling it down in the office. And then um, when uh, Mike judges, Mike judge pitched um, King of the Hill to Fox, he didn't have anything. He just went into the interview as Hank Hill pitching Arlen to the executives of why they should do their TV show in this fictional place, Arlen, Texas. And they're like, who is this guy? What are his friends? We want more. Please give us more. Did you guys see the crossover? episode it was a very very slight second but uh it's when bart joins the football team and homer becomes the coach i don't oh, know yeah, if i, I remember that that, that that king of the hill the king of the hill family is in the the bleachers and for a slight second they're like we came all the way to arlen for this <laughs> or from arlen to this yeah it was, yeah, it was it's it wasn't. It was a crossover, like frame. Not a full episode. Like, yeah, just a very yeah. small. Yeah, like a scene at best. Yeah. yeah. Uh, also, I did. I did want to mention. So, like, uh, when when Brooks 
got a hold of Graining to have him come in to just talk about, you know, doing some sort of animated shorts for the Almond Show. This wasn't even close to them having an idea of like starting an animated series, like a cartoon show on the network. They just had little 30 seconds before and after the commercials. And uh, that's where the Simpsons family was born. But uh, it, again, someone drunk at a party. I think it was like a Christmas party or a New Year's Eve party again. But the animator who was doing the animation for the Simpsons Almond shorts uh, like cornered James L. Brooks and he just like very passionately explained like how much to animators and to people who do anything close to animation or even just fans of animation, how much it would mean to them to have a show, an animated show on primetime. And it there hadn't been one at the time for 25 years. So Brooks heard him out and he's like, he saw the patch. He saw his, like, he said he saw his, like his eyes welling up with like tears because he was so passionate about the idea. And that was like the turning point that convinced him and Graining to actually go out and pursue like a full show, which they started in, was the first season in 89 or was it 90? I want to say it was 89. Yeah, 89. Yep. It started in the, the very end of the 80s. And I don't think it became The Simpsons until 91. No, it's The Simpsons in 89. Okay. Or, uh, yeah, or I mean, yeah, it yeah. didn't become syndicated as its own program until 91, is what I th- my memory tells me. Fun fact, since we're going to the, the starting point of The Simpsons, did you guys know in the original when they uh, have the clouds come up and it says The Simpsons, the right side. Excuse me. It covers up sons a little bit longer than the simps because the intent was they are simple people. They're simps. Huh. That word had a different connotation back then. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the simp sons. I'm turning this shit off. I'm turning this shit off. back to james l brooks uh so like we were saying before at first uh brooks and graining they resisted doing a feature television show and this is the fucking coolest thing so james l brooks said when they were doing the shorts it was like meeting up with people to play jazz it's like let's do it the simplest way possible and uh, the process was fast and it was as close to pure fun and it should be criminal to have that much fun And he's not a musician himself, so he says the only way he can think of uh, comparing it to when they were doing the shorts was, like, a bunch of people, like, musicians meeting up to jam. And I just, I think we can all very, very heavily relate to that idea. If if anyone's not sure, we are very uh, jam-oriented among the three casters here right now. (laughs) I I mean, even if you want to take jam in a different way to like where we just go, we meet up, we'll jam, we'll improv. But like, you can also have people that like meet up to jam and just like play like, Oh, do you know, a uh, fucking, uh, I'm trying to think of a well, here, 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 Here's what I would say. I would say, let's not even take it in terms of music. Let's break down the idea of jam with like within music, but like take it in a way that we can apply it to other things. It's just Flow. a way. Yeah. 
adjust a way that different people that can think on their feet just start throwing ideas at each other and turn those ideas into something right then, right there. And I also think it's a very, very, very big proponent of comfortability. It's yeah. like all three of us, we can bullshit and I feel comfortable around you guys. There's like less thought when, with the yeah. back and forth. Like I know, I but know, you go, I, I know Johnny might roast me super hard in something that's like really close and personal to me. But I also know that if I get into something on the street with him, he's going to throw fisticuffs with me, not at me. Oh, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I could say, which yeah, I, goes completely, goes back to his casting once again. He likes to, cre- he has to, cre- he wants to create the environment. Yeah. Yeah. Huge thing. And I mean, before that, it was not, I, f- I feel like, I don't know if I'm giving him, well, I'll give him too much credit. I feel like before James L. Brooks, there wasn't really that kind of appreciation for the whole team. Well, what I think is really interesting is so far now that I'm like reflecting back quickly on every, like all the different people that we've worked at, like in terms of the head creatives, none of their processes are particularly like congruent and similar. Like they all kind of have very different, you know, like this is my goals. This is why I'm doing this. Like, you know, it's not like they all had the exact same vision and came together on it. They're like, I like, this is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm doing. This is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm doing. And they've managed to put it together into a, into something that's like, you know, the Simpsons. Enjoyable okay, and was, coherent yeah. for the yeah, yeah, rest yeah. of the world was, to understand. Exactly. It, it's not some, like, you know, there's some shows out there that it's like, oh, we have this grand idea of this story that we've thought to from beginning to end that we're going to implement. But this was like a kind of a hodgepodge, real, real American, like, you know, oh, we're just throwing shit together. And once we get the parts together to stick, like, let's keep it running. Yeah, there's actually a really good story that I heard from James L. Brooks. Uh, so him and Graining started working together and they were, you know, writing, creating, just whatever the terms were, like they were doing stuff together. They were making The Simpsons. And uh, Brooks said at one time he was having a conversation with Matt and he had always thought that they came from the similar place. Like they were very... Uh, like-minded similar yeah like-minded similar like uh, background kind of thing and he found out that you know uh matt graining was like the uh, like class president like he was on the football team and like obviously he knew we went to harvard but that's a different thing altogether but like uh james l brooks was like when i found that out it was crushing like heart crushing he's like i thought that i thought here i was working with this guy for so long i thought we came from the same like you know idea ethos kind of thing and to find out that i was getting beat up for stupid pranks in school and he was getting praised for you know this this and that like you know bad student good student popular kid not popular kid uh and i think that's where the the uh Dis, not dislike, because that's a strong word, but the uh, animosity animosity for each other came from. Because in 95, I believe it was, they had uh, a little public dispute. Is that over the Critic Gang episode? Yeah, Star is Burns. It was public? 
Well, they they made their dispute public, so it wasn't like they didn't fight internally. They were fighting with the media involved. Yeah, they were they were, they were saying quotes to organizations about each other to that they were quoting them in the paper, showing type shit. Like really, yeah. So, Damn, so I Matt I, Matt was I, I, really I, upset, saying essentially it was a thirty minute advertisement for his show, The Critic, on The Simpsons. Wait, wasn't we 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 briefly covered that in the uh, Al Jean episode? Yeah. Yeah, but wait. So why why was uh why was James L. Brooks involved in this? Because because he, he was, was part of the critic. Yes. He was. Him and Al Jean went over and started doing stuff on the critic, and then they did the network wanted the crossover episode, and they did it. And Matt Groening was pissed because his buddies had gone over, started doing something else, and then were making him do something on his thing about their thing. And he's like, "This is stupid. I hate it. And this show's trash." <laughs> Brooks was the producer, so he allowed it. Yeah. That was that was the dispute. He was in charge of the Simpsons, but he allowed it, it to was, go It through. was funny because it's a bunch of, like, 50-year-old men uh, just, like, calling each other out for being immature. <laughs> why, though? I mean, like... Dude, like, I'll do a whole... I'll, that seems I'll, like I'll ego at my point. Uh, yeah. yeah. At that point, yeah. yeah you or, know, I mean, maybe... You know, you're you're the biggest cartoon on TV in your fucking nation, like da 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 da. You're and you're all in like such large roles of it. You know, it's it's your show at this point, or like and, you know. Brooks was uh, Brooks was quoted saying that Matt was very involved with the episode. They even redesigned um, the character, uh, the the main character James Sher- or whatever the Sherman or whatever. But they made him yellow to put him in the Simpsons. Yeah, yeah. And and Matt brought that up, so they made a redesign for him. So he was involved with it, and then it got public, and that's what exactly what Brooks. That, that's what Brooks is most upset about. about. Was exactly he's like, yo, like we we went through this episode. You know, you gave us your like rewrite edit type shit. We did that stuff, and then you still bitched about it out like in the public, like. And then he said his little spiel, and then you know. Matt probably fired something back, and then Algeen hopped on, and you know they probably had like ten little statements between different tabloids and shit and journals, and then they kept on going. Okay, so we'll end on this. We'll end on this. Without the Simpsons, what do you, what what else would we not have? Because obviously, no Futurama, no uh, any Matt Groening stuff. Like, what do you think? Hopefully, Mike Judge. Hopefully. Hopefully, King of the Hill, but that's a what if, because then you wouldn't have the chance. Because I don't, I don't, I'm not willing to speak on what we would and wouldn't have, but we would be at least a decade behind in adult animation from our nation. Like he opened, he opened the doors for it, so then we get all these different things coming in, and a lot of them don't stick, but a lot of them only get a few seasons or whatever. But if we didn't get the Simpsons on through shorts on the uh, Ullman show and then into its own thing, we, that wouldn't happen until at least the mid nineties, late nineties with something. And, you know, we'd be so far behind that. It we, we, we may have gotten there at a certain point, but it wouldn't have been the same path. And like, we talked about Al Jean last week and like, at this point researching all this, like he's kind of inconsequential when it comes to it, because if it wasn't for James L. Brooks being, 
uh, in the certain place he was a and badass. calling up Matt Groening, being a badass, making it from fucking rags to riches, calling up Matt Groening, and, Matt, and also Matt Groening being the person he was instead of being like, well, I guess I'll just bring him what I have. He's like, no, fuck that. I'm just going to draw something real quick on a napkin. It could have been a napkin, you know? Like, he's lucky he had a piece of paper in, like, the waiting room he was sitting in. In five minutes, he drew up all of the characters of The Simpsons. And like we talked about it before, he want he wanted all the characters to be unique on silhouette, which is one of his like quirky Matt Groening rules. Like I saw actually funny thing anti that that I saw recently was this one guy showing a, like a thing where he drew, this was uh, for Dragon Ball Z and he drew out like a basic face without hair and then he had different little like hair cutouts that he dragged over <laughs> the figure and like five or six of the main characters of Dragon Ball Z are the same face shape with a different haircut. And that's, that's it. Different, different haircut and then different clothes that they're wearing. But that's enough for most people to not realize that they're the same. He also alludes to that, Matt, in um, um, Skinner and his mother. Skinner's mother traces his silhouette and he has a whole wall of all of his silhouettes as he goes. Oh yeah, 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 you're right. Oh my on the pick on the upright by the staircase. Yeah, so it's a little allude to his rule, as you would say. How important silhouette is. Uh there's like a lot of uh creatives that had certain rules and you know, like if you're gonna work for this person and make these movies or films or cartoons or animations, like you have to abide by these rules. The one that comes to mind, which I think is really cool, Tim Burton had a no ninety degree angle rule. Yeah. Which just like it comes through in everything that he's done, and it's such a small thing, but when you think about it, it's such a large thing. Yeah. I've seen posts online where people are like, "Here's an eighty nine degree angle," and people are just infuriated by it <laughs> and now the entire shot is nothing but those <laughs> brilliant yeah all right anything well, else on the mr brooks here i mean other than the fact that all of the uh like the episodes and things that he's he has done for his shows I mean, his credit list goes on for days. It, it goes on for days, but if you look at it, you read one of them, and you'd be like, oh, that's a Simpsons episode. So let's see here. He also had a pretty heavy hand in the uh, Simpsons movie, the creation and uh, direction yes. of that. He was yeah. pretty pretty big in that. I think he was saying for the movie, they really had all of like the heavy hitters, like a lot of people that hadn't been working for the Simpsons for a while that did back in the day, they had them all come in. And he was saying that was kind of a little like over stressful because you have so many people you have to work with and like so many things that are trying to be done. So many egos. <laughs> yeah. So like, okay, so random episode I see here of Rhoda, which was a spinoff of the Mary Tyler Moore shows. Brenda runs away. That is you know, like, just titling like uh lisa runs away or so-and-so does so-and-so uh where's i saw a bunch of them earlier the making of a vegetarian did you know is that that's the one where lisa becomes a vegetarian no that's an episode he uh appear he 
wrote for for uh, no maybe he didn't okay maybe it's just a coincidence because that episode has i believe paul mccarthy Mo- yeah yeah the beatles yeah and he said he would only be in it if they promoted vegetarianism and lisa remained a vegetarian really yeah after that yeah and that's kind of one of her first introduces introductions to being like a Buddhist type character. And then she adopts Buddhism later on. I think after that, uh-huh. there, there's a scene of her like meditating on the roof above uh, Apu's with Apu's. Uh, yeah. yeah and there's like a garden where he, up there. That's where they meet uh, Paul McCartney yeah. and Linda McCartney is on the roof. Oh, well, we always come to Springfield to go on Apu's roof with all the garden yeah. vegetables. <laughs> that was, yeah. I don't know. But also they, I mean, they, they kept like, "Quote unquote continuity with like Lisa being a vegetarian, but they didn't really do too too much with it uh, over the long haul of things. Well, she still doesn't eat meat, so they kept that. She yeah, was still they a kept vegetarian. That <laughs> Listen, all I wanted to say, you fucking donuts. Go go on Facebook. Go on Facebook. Look up the Doe Show podcast uh, and join that. Join uh, our little. We'll, plan I'll, there. I'll also be getting us onto the Doe Show podcasts Instagram or uh, TikTok. TikTok's going to be our. Cat we already focus have the program. TikTok. You could also you could have already been following, but the name will be changed to the Doe Show podcasts. Uh, we have Instagram at the Doe Show. I think there's underscores or whatever. But listen. We, we're all over the place. You just go to Google, you type in the Doe Show, you'll probably find all the shit we have. Just D-O-H. That's all you need to focus on. Because if you type out D-O-U-G-H, I feel like you're going to get a lot we're of gonna get, We're probably going to go to something on the Food Network, and we'll yeah, never get you back from there. Kind of thing. We can't, we've got a very small audience, and we need to keep the numbers that we do have coming. Yes, we need to retain the people we have. Go on Discord. If you play video games, go on Discord. Or even if you we'll just like video you. chatting or hanging out with people while they play video games, go on Discord, look up the Doe Show. It's a nice little community we got. We're playing all sorts of stuff, Terraria and other people play more expensive games, but uh, I mean I don't have anything I've converted all my personal things to the Doe Show, I have nothing personal to follow what about you Alex, you got you got anything? Um, I mean, my my. no, I mean, you don't need to follow my Instagram it's Master of Microbes but um, I don't do much on there it's mostly cat things yeah. at this point so, yeah what about you Ryan, what are you working on? I'm working on catching these waves, bro. Are you? Oh, yeah, you got to go, man. You got to help. All right, well, we got to close this one out so Ron can go catch that nar-nar. Hey, uh, all right, there, a was, pleasure, there, there was a tropical storm in Mexico, and it, it, it's coming up here, and there's like, oh, now it's six to ten footers, bro. Ripping. All right, well, just make sure you keep – make sure you, like uh, – dude, how about this? You like turn on your location on your phone and you uh, send it to me. So like, if you go out on the Narnar, at least I can call someone that you know. <laughs> Once I see you start floating around in there for too long, I know something's up. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 nine thirty his time, and he's three miles from the coast. I'm gonna call someone. <laughs> All right, on that note, boys, I'm out. Yep, that's been today's, uh, this week's episode, episode of the Doe Show, everyone. Of the Doe Show. Episode 19. We're we're getting there, we're boys. We're almost through half a year. Yeah, all right. 
Say goodbye, everyone. Bye. See you next week. So long, everybody.